and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where authors share objects that have inspired their creative process. I'm Katie Brand, and with me in the Penguin Studio is an author who has made a CBE for services to literature. Her books include the First World War trilogy, Regeneration, the last of which won her the Booker Prize. And she's here to talk about her latest book, The Silence of the Girls. It's Pat Barker. Welcome to the Penguin Studio. Thank you for having me. Uh, I know you're familiar with this place because three years ago you were interviewed by Richard E. Grant to talk about your novel Noonday, which was set in the Second World War. And your latest novel is based on the Trojan Wars. So I know that the battlefield is something you have returned to again and again in your work very successfully. Was there something about the Trojan Wars that you particularly wanted to study? Uh, what really impressed me is the fact that it didn't happen. You know, <laughs> <laughs> There is no such thing as a historical Trojan War. So for the first time, it was quite different because I was writing about a myth, whereas with the First World War and the Second World War, of course, I was writing history and I was trying to get it all right. With the Trojan War, because it was a myth, I wanted to actually jar the reader by introducing deliberate anachronisms, which is why Achilles' men get drunk in the evening and sing English rugby songs. And the way that people talk to each other is very familiar to a modern reader, and yet it's based on something, as you say, that didn't happen, but was in its first writing is 8th century BC. Yes, and based on songs and stories which were even older than that. It is literally the oldest story we know. Well, it's traditional here uh, on the Penguin Podcast, as you know, to choose a number of objects that have inspired you. And so we've got some objects that you have chosen, uh, which is a loom weight and a photo of a pile of rats. So um, we'll come to that later. Yes. <laughs> it might slightly pique the interest of some yeah. of them. I'm glad it's a photo. That's yes, all. I'm... Yes, yeah. But your first object is a copy of the Iliad by Homer. Were you in some way nervous of enraging eminent classicists with your treatment of this? I was asked whether I felt I was going to enrage classicists and I decided uh, that was the least of my <laughs> <laughs> troubles, really. And I, actually, I haven't en enraged many classicists, mm -hmm. I'm pleased to say. I think you've talked before about this notion of the woman being the centre of the story, the woman being Perseus in this particular instance, the, the prize of Achilles, which Agamemnon comes yes, to and the women, And the, the women, or rather the girls, because they are very, very young, are completely silent, whereas Agamemnon and Achilles, the two major Greek warriors, uh, make tremendous eloquent speeches which go on forever, and they almost come to blows at one point. But the girls themselves say absolutely nothing. And I love this quote you have that the start of European literature is essentially based on a, a quarrel between two powerful men over a woman, which I think is, appears in The Human Stain by Philip Roth. Yes, my response to that is, yes, that's how it begins if you're a man. Yes. If you're a woman, it begins with silence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And that's the silence that I was trying to fill in. Yeah, and I've done so incredibly successfully in, in The Silence of the Girls. One of the things that really came across is that the dialogue is very natural and I read that you had said often when you write, when the people speak in your head, they're often speaking in the kind of dialect and accent that you grew up with in yes, Yorkshire. Yes, and I, I, actually, weirdly, that came across to me when I read it before I read that quote from you and I absolutely 
Yes, it's Teesside, which is sometimes Durham and sometimes Yorkshire. Right. It shifts around a bit. But yes, I do hear women's voices talking together very much in Teesside dialect. I mean, the... I wish in a way I'd gone further. I wish I'd made Achilles a Geordie. Because <laughs> he does come from the north. He comes from northern Greece. And he's a little bit of an outsider. Uh, the posh southerners are rather contemptuous of him sometimes. So, uh, you know, uh, yes, or, or Yorkshire, perhaps. Are they the he- that's a right Muppet. <laughs> Slightly a different spin on Achilles to the yes, one people yes. are familiar with. And yet you bring this very earthy voice to this story that can sometimes seem ethereal or lost in the mists of time or, or intimidating. I remember downloading the Iliad and the Odyssey onto my Kindle and then just kind of being too terrified to open it for quite a long time. For some reason, it felt like it's not for me. Yes. Whereas these these sorts of books, the, like The Silence of the Girls, suddenly actually open it all out to me and to hopefully lots of other people, not just women, but men well, or well, anyone. Well, I, I, I felt the Iliad was not for me, both for those reasons, but also because... The battle scenes are very prolonged and they are very bloody. And although I've written about war, I don't particularly want repetitive bloodshed because I think it puts people off enormously, most people anyway. The parts where you do decide to really go for it in terms of the violence or even just these extraordinary and upsetting images of dragging a body round on the back of a chariot and all yeah. of that, when you do decide to describe these things, they are extremely graphic and and arresting and quite disturbing. What place do you have to go to within yourself as a writer to be able to conjure up those images and then describe them like that? Well, you do that in the first draft. And I think the first draft is when you are uh, emotionally challenged yourself. Uh, after you've got a completed first draft, after that, it's just craftsmanship. So you really are just polishing your thinking about the reader. And I am usually thinking about not subjecting the reader to so much horror that they stop being able to think and respond. Uh, Just like uh, in Regeneration, the soldiers remember the front and they have horrible nightmares. But it is limited. You look into hell and then you step back and you start thinking and, you know, feeling different things. You've talked about how sometimes in a first draft... It's almost like a trance-like state. Yes, I think it is. There's a technical term that's called going into flow, where you, you lose track of the amount of time that is passing because you're so deeply immersed. I've experienced it a handful of times myself, and it is an incredible feeling. And one of the things that I felt was that I was being told the story by something. Oh, yes, I was yes. Just, I was merely I, writing I, it down. I felt it particularly with this book. Briseis's voice came very early, very powerfully. And unusually, if I had to go off and do something else and drop the book for a few days or even a few weeks, I went back, she was still talking, mm-hmm. yes, and I could slot back into her very quickly and easily. It's almost like she's calling to you through the centuries, telling you what she wanted to say, or, or was it based... It, it can people... feel like taking dictation at yeah. times. You know, As a writer, especially if you write a lot of dialogue, you have voices in your head, and if you're wise, you don't mention this to your GP, because <laughs> you know what the next step is going to be. Yes. You, you shut up about it. Do you find it comes and goes, or have you reached a stage with your ability and craft and talent where you can almost call it up? 
up. It would be marvellous if I had. Uh, <laughs> but uh, one thing I do know, though, you know, it doesn't happen unless you actually sit there and make words appear on the screen. It doesn't matter if they're the wrong words. That's the essential precondition for any of the words being right. Because people are so curious about the the daily life or working life of writers. Everyone always wants to know. I think there's almost a sense that somebody else has discovered how to make this an easy job and you want to find (laughs) out what they do. You have to sit down, ideally at the same time, in the same place, and then if the muse is inclined to pay you a visit, at least she knows where to find you. (laughs) Yes. Do you have any little tricks that you use? I've, I've got a kitchen timer. It's in the shape of a tomato. So I will set it to sort of 25 minutes and I have to write for the 25 minutes. And in terms of the character of Achilles, who actually, you've made someone who is both completely mysterious but also very, very human in some ways, which is quite extraordinary for someone who's part God. And you have this very early scene with him appearing to shout for his mother on the beach. I suddenly felt this sympathy and empathy for him. How did you approach the changing of the legend of Achilles in that way? Because he's just usually portrayed as a sort of killing machine. Uh, and he is a killing machine a large part of the time. But he, he's also a little boy who was abandoned by his mother. And his mother was a goddess. And his mother simply walked back into the sea. She came back at irregular intervals. And uh, his his relationship with her is a very tormented relationship because she's both doting and neglectful. You know, it's the worst possible combination that a mother can foist on her son. I, you know, I didn't really want to do the gods, but I had to keep Achilles' mother because it's essential for Achilles to be the son of a goddess. The relationship with the mother is essential because you think of all the difficult men you've ever known, they all have goddesses for mothers. Yes. Every single one of them. <laughs> I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. And I, I'm now just thinking back uh, over my life. Yes. Uh, tick, yeah. tick, tick. <laughs> it is true. I wasn't sure if it was a sort of mischievous thing or, or whether just a sort of way of making some sort of ownership of the story, but... Everyone has this sense of Achilles dying because of his Achilles heel with this arrow to the ankle. But you cast some doubt on that, perhaps a different way. Was that something that you really wanted to do to make it your own or was that through research that, that uh, you There done? are different versions of how he died and one of them is that uh, Paris, Helen's of Troy's husband, shoots him in the back with a poisoned arrow which is a, you know, a terrible way for Achilles to go. Mm. No, there's nothing in the Iliad about him having a heel. It is the awful truth that in writing the book, the only knowledge I could assume was the knowledge that the Trojans had a horse and Achilles had a heel. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, can't assume any knowledge beyond that. Yeah. And I don't. You, know, you don't need to know about the Iliad in order to read The Silence of the Girls. The thing I loved about Briseis particularly, and, and all the women as they talk in the huts and as they try to plan and to survive, she has real grit to her. Even though she is a slave, she feels very in charge of her destiny somehow, in a strange way. Once she's over the first terrible shock of having seen her entire family murdered by the man she is forced to go to bed with, she does gradually recover a sense of strength. I think it helps that in her previous existence she was a queen. But yes, she, she gets tougher as she goes along. 
And even though he is this legendarily beautiful, tall, powerful fighting machine who could bring all of the wealth from places that he'd sacked. The other thing I think was really striking in your description of the squalor of the camp, that on the one hand it's all gold plates and bronze mirrors and furs, and then on the other hand these disgusting rubbish dumps and toilets and the rats. The rats are a constant theme Mm. uh, throughout, and that is one of the objects that you've brought along, a picture of a big pile of rats. Yes. Uh, Lovely. Uh, It might even be (laughs) what's known as a rat king, which is one of the most revolting objects on Earth. I don't suggest anyone Googles it. Yes. Uh, But a massive pile of rats. Uh, A massive pile of dead rats. Dead rats, yes. Yes. The situation in the camp is basically 50,000 blokes have been camping on this beach for nine years. Is it clean and tidy? No, it isn't. (laughs) The rubbish dumps, which are meant to be burnt regularly, aren't. And uh, there is a plague. But because Agamemnon has insulted a priest of Apollo, who was the father of one of the captive girls, it's attributed to Apollo, because Apollo is the god of plague. Whereas, in fact, I make it perfectly clear that you've got rats, you've got fleas, you've got squalor, and you've got overcrowding, and these are the ideal conditions for plague. So it's both supernatural in origin, but it's also perfectly natural at the same time. I really like that, actually, that Briseis, even when the plague comes, I I really love her scepticism about where it's come from. She never suddenly says, oh, well, I did this or Apollo did this. No, no, she doesn't. Uh, She's quite tough and unsentimental in that way. Mm. But she does also nurse plague victims because that's what women do. And she later then works in the hospital where the wounded are coming in and there's a very striking line actually where I think one of her fellow women workers, she says, I just want to be clear that I hate them. Yes. Don't start thinking I'm going to start softening because... Because they're young men and and they're in pain and, you know, they're hundreds of miles away from home. Obviously, the silent girls, the victims of the title of the book, they also have to deal with their own grief constantly, not just Briseis, but all the girls. Their families have been killed, they're slaves. Um, And there is a moment in the book where Briseis reflects on what her role is now. And we've got a clip of that moment. So um, let's have a listen to that. At first, I couldn't understand why he wanted me there. But then I remembered. I was his prize of honour. His reward for killing sixty men in one day. So, of course, he wanted to show me off to his guests. Nobody wins a trophy and hides it at the back of a cupboard. You want it where it can be seen, so that other men will envy you. I hated serving drinks at dinner. Though, of course, it didn't matter to Achilles whether I hated it or not. And curiously, it soon stopped mattering to me. This is what free people never understand. A slave isn't a person who's being treated as a thing. A slave is a thing, as much in her own estimation as in anybody else's. So, anyway, there I was, moving up and down the long trestle tables, pouring wine into men's cups, and smiling. Always smiling. Every eye was on me, and yet, as I leant over their shoulders, there was no groping, no whispered, obscene remarks. I was as safe here as I would have been in my husband's palace. Safer, probably, because every man here knew if he overstepped the mark, he'd have to answer to Achilles. To die, in other words. 
That was The Silence of the Girls by Pat Barker, read by Kristen Atherton. Hearing that ties together some of the things we've been talking about already uh, in terms of their historical experience and you bringing that to life, I presume you must have been aware when you were writing it that there was some resonance with things that are going on at the moment in terms of uh, women, uh, particularly in the well, in all industries, actually. I was aware of, uh, you know, issues like the Rohingya women and the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is rightly called the rape capital of the world. So I was aware, very much aware of uh, rape as an instrument of war. And also, of course, of the trafficking of very young girls in Europe. And that is modern slavery. It's just as much slavery as what happened to Briseis. But the Me Too movement was happening when I was in the very final stages of uh, editing the book. And uh, I had this extraordinary thing that I've written a book about the Bronze Age and suddenly it sounds more and more topical every day. And that was a, a very strange experience. Yeah, it just seems to be everywhere. But the, the... I mean, at one point, Briseo says, men carve messages on women's faces, messages addressed to other men. Mm. And, and that, I think, is true. And... Uh... As you say rep repeatedly in one section of the book, I think silence becomes a woman. That, oh, yeah, that... this was a very famous Greek saying, mm -hmm. silence becomes a woman, yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Don't talk. The place where the women seem to really consolidate their power in the book is in the huts where they do the weaving with, around the looms. And so your next object is a loom weight that is actually a Bronze Age uh, loom weight that uh, went at the bottom of the loom, the silence of the girls in terms of how they've been silenced through history and, and their experience, but also the, the, there's this incredible noise, I assume, of them clacking. Yes, the, cla the clacking or the chattering of the, of the looms, which is uh, more or less constant because textiles were a great source of wealth. I mean, the women are slaves and they are therefore wealth in themselves. They get pregnant and produce more slaves. And what do you know, they also weave and produce valuable textiles. The Trojan women were particularly known from textiles. Uh, it was textiles and horses were uh, what Troy was mainly famous for. Were there any parallels in your mind at all with things like the, the cotton mills of the, of the northern? Well, yes, I think so. At one point when Briseis is given to, or oh, Algamemnon takes her, he really works his slaves almost to death in mm. the weaving sheds. And so the point where the little tendrils of wool and cotton are floating around in the air and all the women have coughs, mm. they actually sleep in the weaving sheds, uh, surrounded by these designs which you know like spiders at the center of a web but as Briseis points out we weren't the spiders we were the flies. That notion of the places where women can gather and talk freely is that something the sort of accent of your childhood is it very much in your mind as the women talk? I came from a family of very talkative women I was brought up by my grandparents and uh, my grandmother came from a large family of girls and all these old ladies would get together and quarrel over something that was happened in about 80, 1898, you know, <laughs> like their father had gone to the pub and brought a parrot back and one sister would say, it was pissed as a newt, and the other sister would say, my father never touched a drop of alcohol in his life. And there they would go at it. And it was a very good, uh, you know, future historical novelist because it's, uh, you know, the past is a matter of dispute and it really, really mattered. 
And do you think those early female influences, I know you've spent a lot of time talking about men in the battlefield in your in your work, but I know you said about your early work, which was like Union Street and so on, which was very focused on the lives and experiences of women. Are those voices in your head all the time? I mean, is that what you sort of return to in some ways as a sort of first I, I point of so, reference? I think so, yes. I was all very much aware of it in dealing with the women in this book that I was returning to my first two books in the way that the women got together and spoke about men, in a way which I think women on their own have always spoken about men in a kind of ribald, almost passive-aggressive way because mm. they have no actual power. And uh, I, I think men would be quite shattered, perhaps, if they knew how women talk about them. But I don't think they talk about us nearly as much as we talk about them. No, or certainly not in the same way. And uh, there's a moment, actually, when Achilles and Patroclus walk away from the hut, I think, where the women are dressing a, a dead body of, yeah. and he, they hear this great burst of laughter and, and don't stop because it seems they'd rather not know what's yes, been going what's on in been there. Go, what's been going on. And, in fact, Achilles turns up and breaks the taboo because it, the, laying out to the dead is a woman's, exclusively a woman's job. And uh, the women stand their ground. They don't say anything. He owns them. He's got absolute power. But they stand their ground and it's Achilles who backs off. Mm. The women have this kind of different power Mm -hmm. because they are the gatekeepers of birth and death. Yeah, the women have to deal with the muck and the rot, essentially. Yes, and, yeah. and the women just take it all because they have to just cope. There's nothing else for them to do. Yeah, and, and it, it is a source of power to them. I interviewed Colm Tobin recently about his new book, The House of Lucky Names. Lucky you, he's yeah. a great writer. I really, really enjoyed it. It was wonderful. His book is a, a, based on the story of Clytemnestra and Agamemnon from, yeah. in terms of his domestic life. And there have been other classic stories retold recently. Natalie Haynes is a particular author who deals with I'm reading with her at the moment, actually. Yes. Yeah, she's yeah. great. It seems to be a moment where people are returning to the classic stories and wanting to find a new way in or a contemporary voice within them. Do you, do you think there's any particular reason for that? I can think of several reasons. One of them is that uh, the you know individuals at the towards the end of their life return to the beginning in order to make sense of everything that's happened in between, and that raises the question of what are we coming to the end of? I do think there is a sense of change, a sense of the old ways ending. Is it bad or is it good? I don't know. If it's the end of patriarchy, yes, it's good, but uh, I'm not convinced that. It's the end of that. I just don't know, really. I was thinking the other day... It's, it is quite dramatic, the number of people who, acting quite independently, have started retelling Greek myths. Well, I think good writers have can sense these things somewhere in them. They feel it in the air before other people do. So you can become... Yes, I would agree with that. ..a sort the, of the, the, herald yeah. of something. Yes. But you know, there are optimistic things, because one of the things I felt optimistic about in reading the Iliad was to think that, you know, right back thousands of years ago, narratives, stories, characters, place and the use of language was already absolutely fascinating to people, and it still is. Writers sometimes say, well, the novel is, you know, not in very good shape at the moment. And I think, well, does it really matter? Because what matters in the end is narrative and characters, the stories we tell ourselves, and I don't think we're ever going to stop doing that. 
And does that excite you as a writer, you feel? Oh, yes, I think so. I find that optimistic. People tell stories in terrible, terrible circumstances, just like if they've got anything at all to draw with, they will draw something. And that's who we are. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a great thing. Well, I hope you continue writing for many years. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be fascinated to see what subject you tackle next. Um, thank you so much for joining me today. The Silence of the Girls by Pat Barker is a fantastic read. It's earthy and honest and truthful and gives an incredible window into the mind of a historical woman, but also The Iliad by Homer, which, if you've ever felt, is off-limits to you. Do read this book because it will give you a wonderful way into it and it is a fantastic piece of work in its own right. So thank you so much for talking to me today, Pat Barker. Thank you. Michelle Obama's memoir, Becoming, has become the fastest-selling book of the year. It is an intimate, powerful and inspiring memoir by the former First Lady of the United States. I wanted a dog. I wanted a house that had stairs in it, two floors for one family. I wanted, for some reason, a four-door station wagon instead of the two-door Buick that was my father's pride and joy. I used to tell people that when I grew up, I wanted to be a pediatrician. Why? because I loved being around little kids, and I quickly learned that it was a pleasing answer for adults to hear. Oh, a doctor. What a good choice. In those days, I wore pigtails and bossed my older brother around and managed always and no matter what to get A's at school. I was ambitious, though I didn't know exactly what I was shooting for. Now I think it's one of the most useless questions an adult can ask a child. What do you want to be when you grow up? As if growing up is finite. As if at some point you become something and that's the end. Michelle Obama invites listeners into her world. With unerring honesty and lively wit, she describes her triumphs and her disappointments, both public and private, telling her full story as she has lived it, in her own words and on her own terms. The audiobook is available to download now.